Good morning. Let us stand together here from God's word. From Psalm 16, the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night, my heart also instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Beloved, we are in the presence of God today. As he dwells in the praise of his people. Let us rejoice in his presence and his power together. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. Oh, my soul, praise him, for he is your help and salvation. Come all who hear, now to his temple draw near. Join me in glad adoration. Praise to the Lord. Praise to the Lord above all things so wondrously reigning. Shelters you under his wings and so gently sustaining. Have you not seen all that is needful has been sent by his gracious ordaining? Praise to the Lord who will prosper your work and defend you. Surely his goodness and mercy shall daily attend you. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do. If with his love he be friend you. We rejoice. Joyful, joyful, we adore you, God of glory, Lord of love. Hearts unfold like flowers before you, opening to the sun above. Joyful, joyful. Adore him, 
All that hath life and breath come now with praises before him. Let the amen sound from his people again. Gladly forever adore him. Let the amen sound from his people again. Gladly forever Amen. Let all that has life and breath praise the Lord who reigns over his people, who both sustains us and richly blesses us. You may be seated. Hi, I'm Josiah Bellflower. I'm the missions minister here at Desert Springs Church. I'm glad to tell you that this Friday, we have to, the opportunity to do just as the song suggests. We can join together in glad adoration and ponder all that God has done. Cause for Praise will be this Friday at 7 p.m. As many of you will recall, while we were under stay-at-home orders, our music team began to prepare songs to, pre- uh, to pair with the sermon series we were going through of Psalm 90 to 100. These songs not only celebrate the timeless truths that are in the Psalms, but they will forever have the ability to help us remember how God sustained us during uncertain times. These Psalms speak of God's righteous reign over his people, of his justice over the wicked, of his eternal nature that gives us a place to hide in the midst of our frailty, of our source of refuge and danger and of sickness, of how all the nations will wonder at his might. These songs will also call us to worship the Lord who reigns, to ascribe him the glory that he deserves. This Friday, you will have the choice of joining us in person, or you can stream live on YouTube, or you can download the MP3s on Friday. You can assign up to attend uh, on our website or the app. Please also remember that we have our quarterly members meeting this Wednesday at 6.30. We will be exercising the keys of the kingdom as we, the body of Christ, Remember our commitment to one another and our responsibility to affirm and welcome new members into our flock. I always think of our members meeting as a sweet family gathering. If you've never been, you don't know what you're missing. Uh, This Wednesday, we're actually going to have our annual elders Q&A, which is something uh, I think many of us look forward to. If you want to ask a question, you can email info at DSC abq.com. But please have those questions in by tomorrow. Again, if you want to register to come, please do that on our website or on the app. If you're a guest with us this morning or you're streaming online, we're so thankful for you. Our prayer is that God uses our worship service to richly bless you. If you have any questions at the conclusion of our worship service, we're going to have pastors up front that you can come and speak with, or please reach out by emailing, again, info at DSC, 
abq.com. Now please join me as I pray for our worship service. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for you are the Lord of love. You loved us even when we were your enemies. You are gracious, and we see that most clearly in how you sent your only begotten Son to die for sinners. God, we just sang a song of praise, inviting one another to draw near to your temple and to join in glad adoration. Lord, we pray for those who come here today and don't feel glad to draw near to you. We pray that you would console all of us with your mercy. Use this service to convict your saints and to draw us again to your refreshing waters of grace. We also pray that you would use the singing, prayers, and preaching to convict those who are separated from you. And we pray that you would enable them to find peace and forgiveness through the atoning work of your Son. God, do a supernatural work and use this service for your glory and for the good of us sinners. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us stand and rejoice in our great God.
be seated. It is great to be back up here in this capacity to bring God's Word to you this morning. Uh, if we haven't met, my name's Ryan Kelly. I'm the preaching pastor here, sometimes. <laughs> I jokingly say sometimes because, uh, if you don't know, I had a bit of a health scare in late August. I had some symptoms that um, looked like could be a heart attack or a stroke, and uh, Sarah took me to the ER, and praise God, it wasn't either of those. Uh, it was a hypertensive crisis, which just means way high blood pressure. Um, the elders graciously put me on a medical leave to work on that and figure out what was going on. And while the last couple of months have had some ups and downs and various discoveries, uh, the short of it is, is that now my blood pressure is leveled out uh, with the help of some medicine and uh, and I'm in about as good a shape as I have been in a decade or so, which isn't saying much, but it's better is better, right? We'll take it. Uh, also in the process, uh, like with stress tests and things like that, the doctors discovered that I have a hole in my heart and not a God-shaped hole like everyone is born with. Uh, this is a real hole in the heart, and uh, it's a PFO if you want to Google that. Um, and it's not all that problematic or too uncommon. Um, it means I'm a little more susceptible to stroke, um, which, you know, it's not so serious. They go in and they do surgery at my age. That's one of the first times I've heard at your age, but I'll hear more of that in days to come, I'm sure. Uh, and like many of you who have heard at your age before in a medical setting, um, I'm taking an aspirin a day to help with this hole in my heart, uh, like many of you do. Um, by the way, we also learned that um, this hole in the heart thing can be a contributor to migraines. Uh, many of you know I have suffered from migraines almost on a daily basis for many years, and uh, I'm happy to report that in the last few weeks, uh, migraines have significantly improved, and we're not even, yeah... Thank you. Well, we praise God for that. We're not sure of all the reasons for it. It could be as simple as daily aspirin. None of you recommended daily aspirin to me all these years. Everything else. I'm just kidding. Who knew? Well, in short, I'm, I'm back and with renewed vigor for this work and with fresh thankfulness for our elders who uh, graciously um, care for me and... Uh, not just my health, but also uh, my long-term work. Uh, I'm thankful for Chase and others who've been so adequately feeding us with God's Word in recent weeks, and uh, thankful for you, the church body. Well, let's turn to Nehemiah 1 in our Bibles. To Nehemiah 1, as we begin a new series today in this Old Testament book about, I don't know, one-third the way through our Bibles, or through the Old Testament at least, and as you're turning there, let me ask you to ponder what it is that breaks your heart. What breaks your heart? 
You know, what piece of bad news do you get and it's just devastating? It it wrecks and ruins an otherwise good day or an otherwise good year. We've all experienced that. We're, We're cruising along and then unthinkably bad news comes to us. And we're stopped dead in our tracks. We're, we're speechless, if not breathless. I think most of us in this room experienced that on 9-11-2001. Some of you have experienced it and you're recalling it now. A fateful day when you lost a son or a daughter or a spouse. Many of us might recall occasions where We were devastated by something, but now with the span of time, we look back and we realize it wasn't that big of a deal. Maybe you expressed your feelings and intentions to a young lady only for her to respond, yeah, I don't see it. And you're crushed for a day or a week or more. Or your team lost the Game 7 championship, and the next day is not the same. The wrong guy got elected, or maybe will get elected. A big loss in the stock market, whatever it is. What breaks your heart? There are some sad events, some bits of bad news for which our broken hearts betray a level of idolatry. It shows we love them way too much. Of course, there are some legitimately, devastatingly bad events in this world for which we rightly are grieved and broken. And there are some bad news reports that come to us, and unfortunately, we yawn. We tisk. We shake our heads. We shrug. And we go on about our day. There are some bad things for which we're just not sad enough. That's what I'm confronted by as I come to Nehemiah, at least in the first chapter. In Nehemiah 1, we have a godly example where Nehemiah shows us what deserves our mourning and how to mourn and what to do with our mourning and what to do next. From Nehemiah 1, we gain some helpful perspective on what really is important. And that is as needed today as ever because it is in our ears constantly that this thing is the most important thing. That thing is the game changer. This is everything. And it feels like that to us. It feels like the election or enduring coronavirus or or whatever is going on at work is the most important thing in the world. Well, Nehemiah's example will probably convict you then. It'll convict as we see his priorities and affections as we see ours not quite matching up. But Nehemiah's example also should energize us and invite us into this beautiful example, this beautiful way before the Lord, even in the midst of devastating heartache. Nehemiah 1. Let's read it together as soon as I find that page in my notes. There it is. 
Nehemiah 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you've redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. So says Nehemiah 1. And there are three R words that will help us hang our thoughts on this passage. The first is report. There's a devastating report. Nehemiah receives a devastating report about the city of Jerusalem and its inhabitants. And we're picking up in the middle of a story here on a number of fronts. For one, Nehemiah is a character previously unmentioned in the Bible. And we're picking up somewhere in the middle of his life. We'll soon learn that Nehemiah is a Jew serving under the Persian king Artaxerxes in the days after the Babylonian captivity, or as our passage says, the exile. In fact, it's the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign. That's what's meant by the 20th year in verse 1. The year is 445 B.C. So here we note these aren't fables. This is history. These are real dates, real kings, and this is a real account from a real person. But another way we're picking up in the middle of the story is that the book of Nehemiah is hitched to the previous book, Ezra. In fact, the earliest versions of the Old Testament, there the two books are one book. It's just called Ezra. And then later versions are called Ezra 1 and Ezra 2. Now in our Bibles, it's Ezra and Nehemiah. But regardless of how you package them or what you title them, they clearly go together. They make up one timeline, one story. 
about the events of God's people in the 6th and 5th century B.C. And another way in which we're picking up in the middle of a story when we come to Nehemiah is that we're picking up in a grand story that stretches cover to cover of our Bibles. And if you're new to the Bible, you should know that. The Bible doesn't just give us timeless vignettes or moral lessons. It's a story made up of stories. The Bible's stories make up a whole. And the stories within can be plotted along a timeline. So there's sequence, there's development, there's story, and then there's capital S, story. And that's why it's essential to know where we are in the story, especially when we come to the Old Testament, because most of us are less familiar with the Old Testament, and because it makes some bigger moves than what we find post-resurrection in the New Testament. To understand Nehemiah, and really to understand why the report he receives in chapter 1 is so devastating, you got to know some key themes that came before, some developments, such as those promises that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17, promises that from Abraham God would make him a people, a great people, even a nation. And this nation would dwell in a land, a promised land. And from this people in their land, there would be blessing and blessing to the nations. When we think about Nehemiah, the land is crucial. And when we think about the land, we should think of the presence of God as being essential. You see it in our passage in verse 9. Jerusalem is the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. God would dwell there. The presence of God and God dwelling with his people in communion, that's really the whole plan of God. That's what was enjoyed by Adam and Eve in the garden when they walked with God in the cool of the day. That's what was lost when sin entered the garden. Adam and Eve were kicked out. It's not that they didn't have any contact with God after that, but it wasn't the garden. It wasn't like it used to be. And from there, God began to slowly reestablish and restore his presence among his people, first with Abraham and his descendants, but more significantly, when we come to the second book of the Bible, Exodus. God hears the cries of his people who are in slavery, and he frees them unto himself unto their worship, unto his presence. Which, of course, leads to the tabernacle, a tent for his presence, which leads later on to the more permanent structure of the temple, the place of God's presence in Jerusalem. And this is no small or theological or merely intellectual point for the Bible. It's for your joy, As Drew read from Psalm 16, verse 11, it's in God's presence that there's the fullness of joy. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. God's purpose is to draw near to a people intimately and covenantally. It's for their joy. It's for their good. It's what his plan is all about. And in the old covenant days, that meant a specific plot of land. 
And yet from the very earliest days, God warned. Think of what God said through Moses at the end of Deuteronomy. Chapter 28, verse 15, Moses said, If you'll not obey the voice of the Lord your God, It'll be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes. And then he, he goes on from there. And eventually, verse 36 of Deuteronomy 28, the Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, and you shall become a horror, a proverb, and a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. Exile. God warned of it in the days of Moses. And fast forward six centuries, and God's warnings of that were being heightened through prophets like Jeremiah. You see, the people's rebellion had grown. It had reached an all-time high in the days of Jeremiah. And God would not any longer allow his presence to be among his sinful people. And like a good parent who disciplines his children, so the Lord disciplined his people just as he promised with exile with captivity in Babylon. It was in 586 that King Nebuchadnezzar and his army laid Jerusalem to waste. They raised the ground, raised to the ground Solomon's glorious and massive temple. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem were carted off to Babylon as slaves. And there they would remain in time out for decades. And yet God's faithfulness to his promises of old wouldn't die out there. The story wouldn't end like that. So the same prophet, Jeremiah, who promised discipline and exile, also promised salvation and restoration. In Jeremiah 29, thus says the Lord, he says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I, God says, will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Well, it was under King Cyrus, the king of Persia, after he overtook Babylon, that a batch of Jewish exiles were permitted to return to their homeland in 538. And you see this unfold in the book of Ezra, the book before Nehemiah. There, Zerubbabel leads the first batch of returnees to the land, and they begin to repair the ruins. They begin to rebuild from the rubble. Soon, well, eventually, it takes a while, but eventually the, the temple is rebuilt. Things look hopeful. Looks even more promising when Ezra brings another batch of returnees to the land. And in Ezra, the preacher begins to preach the Bible to the people once again and plead with them to return to the Lord and make the Lord first and foremost in their hearts and lives. In the book of Ezra, there is... 
progress and then setback, progress and then setback. You see it in chapter 4 as they begin to rebuild the walls, but then there's opposition from without and consternation from within, and the walls go nowhere. They lay in ruins. And then we come to the book of Nehemiah. That's what you need to know before we get to Nehemiah. It's 13 years after Ezra began his efforts in Jerusalem that Nehemiah gets this devastating report. He must have known of the positive reports of progress, return, restoration. He must have heard of Zerubbabel's in the people with him, and in Ezra and the people with him, and the temple being rebuilt. And he might have sort of understandably extrapolated from those good reports that things are moving from good to great until he receives the report that those there, they are in, verse 3, great trouble and shame. Great trouble is serious physical threat. Shame, they're, they're being opposed and mocked and maligned. The people are in trouble. The place itself is still in trouble. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed. And in ancient cities, walls were everything. No matter how pretty it was on the inside, you need walls to keep the enemy without, on the out. But there are no walls. They're laying still in smoldering flames. And as soon as Nehemiah heard this, what does verse 4 say? I sat down and wept, and I mourned for days. And he mourned like this, not out of geopolitical reasons, not out of nationality or patriotism, nor for nostalgia about a place that he loved and knew so well. No, he probably had never been to Jerusalem, probably was born under captivity. He was devastated because of a, a theological significance. He was devastated because he knew the place meant the presence of God with the people of God. That's why he was devastated. And so let's return to where I began. What breaks our hearts? What news is devastating to us? There are thousands of things for which it's right and good to mourn when they're lost and threatened. The loss of a child or a spouse and many, many others. But what we mourn, what devastates us, also really reveals what we love, what we treasure. It's telling, isn't it? It's also telling when we, well, when there are things that we say that we love and treasure, and when they're lost or threatened, we don't exactly mourn. We're not really devastated. And it's also telling on this front. When we do mourn, when we are grieved, when we feel devastated, where do we turn next? What do we do with that grief? Well, Nehemiah was a man grieved by the right things instinctively, immediately. And he was a man who took that grief to the right place 
to the Lord. Which brings us to the second R, a response. There's a God word response starting in verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He was grieved and devastated because of what it meant before the Lord. And he took his grief to the Lord. And I have to ask myself, when I hear of the things of the Lord that take a step backwards, at least in my own understanding and perception, what is my emotional response? What do I feel when you hear of a, another local church closing? When you hear of another Christian failing? When you hear of another pastor being caught up in scandal? I have to ask, am I sufficiently saddened by these things? Is my heart wrenched because of them? When I hear a list of stats once again about how the American Christian church doesn't really understand the gospel very well at all, or when the Christian church is ambivalent about moral certainty so clear in the Bible... When we hear that the church is so much like the world in this way, like divorce or something else, I have to ask, what goes on in my heart? What, what do I, I'm quite used to those things. I've heard them before. I, I, I shake my head. I, I, I shrug my shoulders. Too often I just go on after that. When you hear of Christian persecution... And we hear a fresh story of what happened in Indonesia or Iraq. You've heard those stories before. There probably isn't one that can outdo the others. Missionaries and their children being burned alive. I feel something about that. But not enough. Not enough. What's my reaction to hearing of or perhaps getting an email myself about strong disagreements among Christians about how to handle politics these days or what the church should do about coronavirus or even hearing news or getting the email of someone saying they're going to leave this church because we encourage you to wear masks or not sing got to confess that my response too often is aggravation, annoyance, not heartbrokenness. And not enough is it a responsive prayer. Nehemiah convicts me. He instinctively responds to the devastating news of Jerusalem's ruins with his own internal devastation and he takes it to the Lord in prayer. Verses 5 to 11 in our chapter are a prayer. It's one of nine recorded prayers in the book of Nehemiah, and this one's the longest. It's a model prayer. Nehemiah is a man of prayer. We'll see that. He quickly, instinctively takes burdens to the Lord. Is he a man of action? 
Yeah, we'll see that as well. We'll we'll see a hint of it even at the end of our chapter today. Is he a man about strategy? A man with a plan? Yes, he is. But he's a man first of prayer. We sometimes hear or accidentally say, I guess the only thing left to do now is pray. Like it's last resort stuff. For Nehemiah, it's first resort. He's in no hurry to get to work without first bringing it to the one, the Lord, who can work. And work far better than any one human ever could. And yet he begins with praise. Notice that in verse 5. He begins, Oh, great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He begins with praise. You've heard of praying through A-C-T-S, Acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. And Nehemiah is doing something similar here. He begins with praise. Then he moves to confession. And his confession of sin is both corporate and personal. If you hear people say, oh, corporate repentance isn't in the Bible, it's just something personal and individual. Well, yes, I would say that probably there is some abuse of, you know, some, some development or extrapolation that's not very helpful that we hear a lot today about repenting over maybe even our nation's history. But it's not categorically uh, unthinkable. It's not unbiblical. Here, Nehemiah is praying about his sins and the sins of his fathers. We need to just own our identity, both as Christians and even in a nation, and say, yes, we have sinned, and our forefathers have sinned, and bring it to the Lord. Nehemiah is quick to confess sin. He's quick also to rehearse to God what God has said. You notice that? Verses 8 to 10, the longest part of this, if we're breaking it up according to themes, he rehearses to God what God has already said, what God has already promised. That's a curious thing to remind an omniscient, unforgetting God about what he said. But how good it is for Nehemiah to rehearse it, and what he's doing is bringing before the Lord requests that are pinned upon God's previously spoken promises. He knows what he asks for is part of the plan of God and the will of God because God has said it is. And that's why he reminds God of what he said. And it ends with request or supplication or petition. Verse 11, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. What a model prayer. May the Lord give us some energy in our prayers this week as we spend some time in verses 5 to 11 looking at one of the longest recorded prayers in the whole Bible showing us how to take our burdens to the Lord and how to walk through what we would ask him to do. And may we not stop there, because Nehemiah doesn't. He's a man, yes, with a response of prayer, but thirdly, he is a man ready. Ready. You see that at the end of his prayer, and then the sentence that follows. 
He prays that God would give success to his servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, the king. And then he tells us, now I was cupbearer to the king. The king's right-hand man. We'll talk next week about what the cupbearer meant and all that that signified. The point is the Lord had given him a unique opportunity within the palace of Persia. He was rubbing elbows, you could say, and even more so than that. Rubbing elbows with the most powerful man in all the world at the time. And God would give him favor before that king to get to work. Again, not get to work without prayer. Not get to work before prayer. But having prayed, he gets to work. This is a man who is ready. And so we should ask ourselves, even without knowing yet all that Nehemiah will do in these chapters, what would the Lord have me to do? Where has the Lord put me? What kind of unique position has he put me in? And where are those with power or or, or sway that God might actually allow me to tap into by his grace and for his purposes? I don't know what that would mean in your life, but be a man or a woman Ready, pray, ask the Lord to work, and then strategize, as Nehemiah did. And yet, what would we do if we find ourselves, like me, seeing Nehemiah's example as a little too lofty for my own? What were you to do? What are you to do if you find Nehemiah to be sort of an otherworldly kind of example? Like Michael Finnegan, just begin again. And, and I say that not by pulling yourself up by your bootstraps or tapping into your own self-righteousness or, or waiting until you have the credentials to bring, those, to bring that righteousness before the Lord. I just mean bring it all before the Lord. Begin again. Come to him in prayer. Confess that your heart is too easily distracted by the worries of this world. Confess that your heart is not easily moved these days by the things that are of utmost priority. Bring that to him. Jesus said, come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. Come, all you who are weary of your own selfish hearts, weary of your own distracted, short-sighted worldview weary of the worries of this world that we so quickly buy into that are not really the Lord's worries, not his burdens, not really his purposes, and won't really matter a year from now or a hundred years from now. Just bring that to the Lord. Come to him in prayer again because of who this God is. He's great and awesome. He's full of steadfast love. This is the God who redeems with his powerful hand, not in partnership with you. Come to him. And on account of his grace, say, Lord, would your ear be attentive to me because of Jesus who welcomed me? And so as we consider Nehemiah's example, we also need to consider an example that's even better. 
As Christians, we should consider Christ's supreme care and concern for his people. Nehemiah is a great model of that. He's instinctively and immediately turning to the Lord in prayer because of the burdens of God's people and how much more our perfect Savior. Nehemiah is a great example of intercessory prayer, praying for the people who are under such grief and difficulty, and yet how much greater is our Savior, the perfect intercessor, the sinless intercessor, who didn't once pray, but keeps praying. Hebrews tells us he lives to make intercession for us. He prays for you. Oh, what a Savior. And consider what labor our Savior so courageously and completely undertook for us. We'll see Nehemiah work hard and lead well. He's a good man. And our Savior is so much better. He labored all the way to the cross. He took it all on his shoulders himself. So Christian, look to him afresh today for hope. And that's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper today. We look at this broken body symbolized in the bread. We look at this cup, his blood spilled out on our behalf. And we say, hallelujah, what a Savior. What compassion, what intercession, what labor for our salvation. And that all the more leads us then to be broken for all the right things, to pray to him about all those things. And as he gives opportunity to be ready to work for him in this world. If you're not a Christian, we offer to you today this, what I would call an interpretive key. An interpretive key to what you already experience and see. This is a broken world. It is. Sin has entered this world and it needs a fix. And we offer to you this interpretive key that you maybe haven't seen yet and hopefully today you will. Christ is that key. Christ is the solution. Jesus died on the cross for our sins and was raised on the third day. This is our hope. This is what the Nehemiah story was pointing to. And this is what we're celebrating in this Lord's Supper meal today. We pray today you would come to believe that and put all your hope into this Savior who's such a good and perfect Savior. Well, let me pray for us and then... We'll hear another song, and then I'll come back up and lead us through the Lord's Supper. Lord, we give thanks to you. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your word. We thank you for pictures of redemption. We thank you for models like Nehemiah, and even more for a Savior in our place, Jesus. We thank you for his care. We thank you for his intercession. And we thank you, Lord, for his labor in the cross. May we stand in awe. Give us faith, give us joy, give us endurance. And may we grow in having your heart, Lord, for the things of this world. Amen. Let us stand and respond and continue in prayer.
the depths I cry to you. In darkest places I will call. Incline your ear to me anew. And hear my cry for mercy, Lord. To count my sinful ways, how could I come before your throne? Yet full forgiveness meets my gaze. I stand redeemed by grace alone, and I will wait for you. I will wait for you. On your word, I will rely. I will wait for you, surely wait for you, till my soul is satisfied. So put your hope. say, completely and forever one, my Christ emerging from the grave, and I will wait for you, I will wait for you on your word. Supper, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. We wait for Him. While we wait for Him, 
we need perspective in this world. And the greatest north magnetic pull in our lives should be Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. So the Lord gave us a meal to remember him by, to remember the cost of our sin, to remember the payment that was made, to remember his love, to, to remember the, the, the passion of our Savior in the cross. So we look to these elements afresh today to see, as it were, a broken body and spilled blood, and we partake of it in faith. It's almost like a reenactment of our faith. We just take him in again. We take him in again. We don't get saved again, but we take him in, and we're nourished by it. We, we say, yes, Lord, I need you. I need you. I need you. This is my only hope. Now, if you can't say that today, if you're not yet a Christian, we are so glad that you're with us, and so glad you're with us on this Sunday. But this meal isn't for you yet. It's for those who know what this means and believe Jesus died on their behalf and their sins are covered by his blood. And if that's not you just yet, then even if you took these elements, these cups on your way in, we'd encourage you just to leave it there under the seat in front of you. No worries, no problem. This is a meal for Christians. This is a meal for those who know Jesus died on their behalf and this is their only So if that's you today, we invite you to partake with us. I'd invite you to to get out these elements, maybe even pull the top of the bread off right now. And I'm going to give you some time to think about what it is that stands before us or or, or sits before us in these cups. I I want to give us some time for us to ponder our own sin before the Lord, to, to once again find ourselves to be needy sinners who find grace in Christ and Christ alone. And his grace is sufficient even for our great sin. So as you consider your own sin and you consider your great Savior, look down at these elements and see this picture of broken body and spilled blood. And hear this, for you, for you. You didn't deserve it. None of us did. But if it is for you, then it is done. It is finished. And he now intercedes for you at the Father's right hand. And so you can bring to him any and all of your sin. And you can bring to him any and all of your burdens and worries. He's sufficient. So take some time now before the Lord and ponder and pray. It was on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So yes, Lord, we remember you, and we take this piece of bread as a token of your body 
and we hear afresh for you. And we give thanks. It's in your saving name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's partake together. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 11. In the same way, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So, yes, Lord Jesus, we remember you. We remember your spilled blood. We remember the agony of the cross. We remember, Lord, the, the mockery that you did not deserve, not least from those whom you created for your glory and for your worship. Lord, we thank you for enduring the cross and spilling your blood. And we thank you for blood which covers. We thank you for blood which mysteriously washes white. We put all our hope in your blood for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And let's partake. Let's stand now as we hear a confession of our faith sung to us. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. Christ alone, what is our only confidence that our souls to Him belong? Who holds our days within His hand? What comes apart from His command? And what will keep us to the end? The love of Christ on which we stand.
What shall we sing? Christ, he lives. Christ, he lives. And what reward will heaven bring? Everlasting life with him. And we will rise to meet the Lord. Then sin and death will be destroyed. And we will be your hope say amen. amen amen christ our hope we could not have a more sure and everlasting hope if you're here and you don't have that hope we would love to talk to you we'll have pastors down front come and say hi come and ask questions about christ about the bible about the gospel how we can serve you today we would love to meet you if you do have that hope then let us go and share that hope with the world i'll leave you with this from revelation Chapter 1, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever and all of God's people said, amen.